This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode of See Here is brought to you by. Brought to you by. Brought to you by. <laughs> The love of life. episode 49 of the see here podcast my name is morris and joining me as they always do to talk expertly expertly i tell you about music related film i have from bath mr bernard stickwell good evening and from seoul in south korea mr tim merrill drop that needle ready to go rock and roll and also joining us to drop the needle from lexington kentucky we have professor michael benton good uh, afternoon to you isn't it thank you yeah going into the evening definitely mm. thank you so much for joining us now michael is a new member of the see here podcast family he's joined uh, the uh, facebook group i think maybe just a couple of months ago he discovered our podcast and he'd sent us messages saying i'm enjoying listening to the show and and we hadn't even paid him off he said sometimes you say things that make me shake my fist and sometimes I think, no shit, Sherlock. We decided to invite him on. He's a professor of humanities and film at Bluegrass College in Lexington and also runs a Bluegrass Film Society. So, uh, Michael, you just want to give us a few minutes to talk a little bit about your activities, what you actually do in this film society and and the sort of classes that you teach. Yeah, with uh, the Film Society, we're in Lexington. If uh, For people that don't know Lexington, Kentucky, it's it's a smaller city. It's a couple hundred thousand people. It's not a big metropolitan center like New York. LA, Chicago, you know, on down the line. So we don't get a lot of the films that people get in those areas. And so my whole intent with the the Film Society is to kind of expand people's awareness of what's out there. One of the reasons I I was interested in your show is learning about new films and, you know, make them available to people. So I show films on a weekly basis, anything that's not Hollywood, blockbusters, uh, obscure documentaries, films from other parts of the world, old classics that maybe have fallen through the cracks, crazy cult films. We also have a kind of sister cult film series in a bar that I was telling you about that does the more crazier cult films. But it's it's simply to increase people's awareness of the possibilities of cinema. I think, you know, it's too easy to get stuck in that mall, you know, metaplex, whatever mindset of film. Mm-hmm. So what have you been showing like in the last couple of months? Give us some for examples. They can range. We just showed Prince 
Princess Sid a couple weeks ago. Um, we're getting ready to show Princess Sid is a, a newer film. We're getting ready to show Watermelon Woman, which is a film from the 1990s. Uh, it's a landmark film in the sense of a, a black woman making the film independent, as well as also uh, coming from the independent field. It deals a lot with the independent culture that we're going to be looking at, not in the sense of collecting, but people that kind of circulate on the margins. Probably one of the, the crazier films we'll show this semester or this, this season is Short Bus, if you guys are familiar oh, yeah. with that. Oh, yeah. 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 The most requested film this year. I've taught it in my classes and, you know, you always kind of think, you know, this is something I should be showing in public, but I love the film and I've written about it and I look forward to screening it and discussing it with people. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that the same guy who did Hedwig, right? It is. Another favorite. Uh, we had a touring uh, group doing the Hedwig show and I had a friend, I had never heard of it, and a friend that drug me to it like four or five times. And by the end of the two-week run, we were like on a good friend basis with the people that were in in the play and were in bars with them every night. And I ended up writing an essay that was published about them. So I have a great love for that as well. Huh. And Interesting. I, the lyricist, uh, he's partner with a University of Kentucky professor. He's a partner of, so it also gives us another Kentucky connection. Hmm. Wow. All right. So we'll get some more details at the end of the program. So how people can follow your writings because you uh, have a blog and have some interesting things to say there and maybe how people who live in the in the Lexington area might want to be able to um, enroll in your courses. Can people enroll in your courses independent of doing a degree or doing a formal a full-on qualification? Can they just enlist they can, in any of They your... can do that and they can go, of course, to the Bluegrass Film Society without any, it's free of charge, mm. I should make clear, so no one tries mm. to sue me. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's happened before in other places, so uh, okay. just want to make clear. And we, just to put it out there, we also have a, a film production a course semester long where you do like 16 credits and it's all the way from pre-production to post-production wow that that's great yeah. okay so at the, the end of the show we'll get all those details out so anyone in the area can join it sounds like a really exciting set of activities here i should mention at this time what are we actually here to talk about so we're going to do a discussion about two films I've, this is uh, my pick this month and i wanted to pick two sides of the same coin that subject is vinyl collection. So I've picked a documentary that came out in 2003. It was actually made for SBS television here in Australia by uh, a director, a, a local director called Edward Gillen. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think he's made anything else since making this film. And I don't think he'd made anything before. This just must have been a passion project for him. The film is called Desperate Man Blues about a record collector called Joe Bassard. And then the second film that we're going to talk about is a film made by a guy called Alan Zweig. came out in 2000 called Vinyl. He's made another half dozen films, I think, or so since then. And I'm going to make reference to one of them in the course of our discussion. But both take very different tacks to the activity of record collection. So what we'll do at this point is, well, I couldn't actually find trailers for either of these films, but I'm going to take little snippets just to uh, put side by side right now so you get an idea of what these films are about, what we're going into. And hopefully you'll want to follow up with finding these films to watch for yourself. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to See Here, episode 49. The 1920s and 30s at that particular period of time, there was more traditional music preserved on commercial phonograph records 
at any other time in the history of recordings. The records were made on a base of clay and different types of shellac and pressed uh, most of the uh, records uh, from the major companies like Columbia and Victor were very high quality recordings, although the buyers of the records heard very little of what actually was recorded due to the fact they were playing them on crude acoustical uh, wind-up Victrolas. What a whale of a record. Three years ago, I had no CD player and no CDs. And I decided that it was time to stop holding out. I don't know why I'm keeping my eye closed, if you can see it. I guess I think I look better with my eye closed. No, no, it's kind of okay with my eye I used to keep a diary up until recently in my computer. And maybe, uh, of course, in that diary, all I talked about was women. And here I'm only going to talk about records. But uh, maybe the point somehow will be the same. I'm making this film, it's about record collecting and about vinyl. And I could probably do the whole film right here in my house. But the truth is, it's not just that I don't like looking at myself for a whole film. But other people are more interesting. Well, some people are more interesting. Well, let's hit the room. We live a long, long time to get old. We live a long, long time to get old. So there ain't no need to cry, poor old grandpa's got to die, we live a long, long time to get old. And we're back. Thanks for downloading the program. Hope you're enjoying so far. Hope you continue to enjoy. Spread the word to your friends. So, as I said, the two films that are under discussion for this program are a short film, Desperate Man Blues. It's a, it's a little under an hour, directed by one Edward Gillen. And the second film is Vinyl, directed by, uh, I think he's from Toronto, actually, uh, Alan Spike. Yeah. Came out in 2003. What I think I'd like to do is maybe talk about each film in its own right for a few minutes and then do a compare in contrast so okay. we give a little bit of a an idea what each one of these films represents in its own right before sort of saying what it is that how they uh, turn out very different and i think that'll sort of become more obvious as we go on you know, even just talking about them individually as i said i picked these films and i'd seen them both years ago but i take it that none of you fellows had actually seen it uh, either of these films before so i'd like to go around the table and just sort of get initial impressions we'll start off with you michael i like the film i i think the 50 minutes is perfect for the length of that film. I liked, you know, learning about Bassard. Say, like in the, the opening, was really interesting. The way you see Bassard kind of energetically bopping to an old blues record, you know, smoking a cigar, and then sliding into a visual narrative early days of the record production. You know, where we see how records are being made, and then it's it's really interesting because right after that, he goes to driving towards a covered bridge, and you get this feeling, the way that the style of the film, that you're traveling back in time, and mm. in a sense, I feel in this film that they very effectively bring me, you know, not a person that's expert in the music that's going to be covered, you know, and the music that Bassard likes, bring me to that kind of mindset where I'm going to go back in time 
I'm going to learn about these earlier forms of recorded music. And I thought that was a great way to do it. I really was interested in Bassard, you know, throughout this. He's, he's a charismatic person in the sense of, you know, he, he likes what he's doing. He seems to have a you know well-adjusted life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's just passionate about something and he's followed his passion. So that's that's kind of interesting to watch. I've actually seen both of these before. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, Desperate Man Blues. I bought the DVD probably like about 10 years ago, something like that. And I, I have the soundtrack as well. And I have mm-hmm. the, there's like a five CD box set that was uh, put out of a selection of Joe Bassard's Phonotone label recordings. Nice. Um, so I'm actually quite familiar with uh, with a lot of the stuff that was uh, was in the film. Like Michael said, I, th- I think it's a great film. I think it's interesting in how it puts Joe Bassard across as a he's kind of a historian almost he's kind of you know he he discovered a lot of this stuff or rediscovered i should say and how he's almost kind of curating this sort of part of history that could have quite easily been lost he's a a, again as michael said he's very charismatic likable fellow i think he's a little he comes across as a little pushy sometimes but I think that's purely down to his enthusiasm for the music. And he's, he's kind of evangelical about it as well. I mean, a lot of record collectors and music fans I know tend to be quite... I don't know if selfish is the right word, but they're maybe not all about sharing what they like. Whereas uh, anybody who walks into Joe Bussard's house, within seconds, he's playing them a record, smiling and dancing and blowing cigar smoke in their face, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, a great film. Uh, interesting guy and a really interesting part of history. And as a music fan as well, it's, it's interesting. At, at some point in, um, I think it's in the documentary, there's also on the DVD, there's a little half-hour film called Joe Bussard, King of the Record Collectors. Yes. Um, which is also on YouTube, I believe. Uh, and I think it might be in that, but somebody says that um, if you have listened to or bought a compilation of this kind of music at any time in the last sort of 20, 30 years, then, you know, you are hearing it because of Joe Bussard. He's, you know, he's one of the few people who went round collecting, rediscovering this stuff. And it's because of him and his enthusiasm and his willingness to actually share that this stuff is, is now out there. So... He's done us all a, a great service, and uh, I think this is a really good portrait of him. We had, like, in, in the United States, there was uh, public television, the PBS. And PBS used to have these programs where they would just do sketches of people in communities, you know, like uh, across America. For example, like a guy who owns like one of the last hotels out in the desert in Nevada somewhere or some guy on a ranch who's raising like llamas or a huge cornucopia of people, just different people, you know, and following what they love to do across America. And there was a specific program, I remember, that spotlighted each individual. And Joe Bassard would have just fit right in there, you know, like water on a duck's back. He's an anomaly to me because, like Bernie said, he is a historian and he's almost, I would say, almost like an archaeologist where he actually took the time and he went out. He dug all this stuff out. He went from state to state and out in the hamlet to hamlet and out in the boondocks. And there's even that one part where he's talking about crossing a creek and getting his pant legs wet just to get over to a house, you know, that uh, didn't have a road. And I mean, like this 
guy really, you know, he put the physical legwork in to rescue all this music. As much as we realize as human beings that time marches on and that we have to, you know, go with the flow of change, it doesn't mean that everything from the past has to be disregarded or buried. Bassard is living proof of that. He's kind of caught these bubbles of time. He's not a guy, I think, that really is looking, just living in the past as much as he loves the music of the past. I think he realizes that time is going on, but I think that he's also realizing that you still have to hold on to these nuggets of the past. The only thing I, I really got out of this as well is I didn't think that you would really take to this documentary, Morris, after hearing that he pitched a John Lennon record out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll wasn't really allowed in that house. It was it was either his stuff or the stuff my mom listened to. And um, that's pretty much all I ever grew up listening to. I guess when I got to be a teenager, I rebelled. And uh, what did I bring in? I think I brought in a John Lennon record, and it went sailing across the backyard like a frisbee. Yeah, that was my one point of contention. But as you guys have been saying, his utter love and joy and passion for the music in a way sort of puts him beyond the realm of archaeologist or archivist because that sort of implies to me that that's what you set out to do. Oh, these records are important. I'd better do something about preserving them. I mean, he started out as just someone who was buying a lot of records because he loved this music. And as his collection grew and as America was forgetting its own history, he decided, well, there's something important about preserving these records i'd better keep going out and looking after them and right. as, as i think you already said bernie if you walk into his house he's going to go play a record he's very generous with his music of course he's mm -hmm. not going to let you touch it and <laughs> right. i think at one point in the film he says i was approached by the national library of congress they're not getting their hands on these records because they're just going to end up somewhere in, in the cellar and with right. dust gathering over them and they're just going to be seen as being inverted commas important they're not there to be important they're there to be listen to. This is right. real living history. This is real music. And the thing that I really loved about the approach that the film took was, on the one hand, it could have been just about Joe Bassard's story. But in a lot of cases, it's about the musician's story every oh, few yeah. minutes. He's spinning a record, and then in a day pre-internet or pre-Wikipedia, where you can look up absolutely everything you want to, he's giving you the story. Uh, another really fine example of, of a uh, fiddle and guitar would probably be the Lewis Brothers, which were recorded at uh, El Paso, Texas, little town right on the Mexican border. 1929, Ralph Peer went down there with a recording uh, machine and some engineers. They wanted Western cowboy singers, and they got real cowboy singers. I mean, cowboys that actually worked on a ranch punching cattle. But it's just a unique thing. It's called Bull at the Wagon. And you'll they'll fit a little bit and you'll hear the imitate the bull bowling. You know. It's a neat, beautiful tune. All so much imagination in this fiddle tune, too. It's a beautiful tune. That huge record collection. He knows every song in that record collection and yep. he knows the story about every record mm, in that yeah. collection because he loves the music. You know, pretty much like, you know, we know stories about the music that we listen to, but obviously right. not to that detail. But he'll say, Oh, you know, there's a great record and then he goes and talks a little bit about Sunhouse and the importance of death. Oh yeah. Blues. Like I was I was about to say with Sunhouse, you know, like for first off, you know, there's uh the guy, I forget his name now, who who does a uh, the radio bit where and that was the end of the story. Like you said, he's giving snapshots of all these people along with the music, right? 
And mm-hmm. that was the one part of this documentary, man, that just gave me the chills. I mean, regardless of what you think about the blues or the history of Americana music or any of it, when you see Sunhouse attack that guitar... That's amazing. I mean, it's a, like, you know, you're watching him and you're like, the sounds he's getting out of that thing. It's like, and that, that was, there was no pickups. There was nothing. I mean, he was, it was just him and the guitar. And it's, I don't care what your position is on that music. When you're watching that, it's just, that's just unfucking real. You get Bassard's enthusiasm. You get what he's talking about when you see the footage that goes along with the music. That's what I was going to say. You have a song, Hard Times, that comes right before that Sunhouse clip. And yeah. it's, it's, they're talking about the depression. This music comes out of the depression era and the filmmaker is showing us the images of the depression and you're getting a sense of how the song could have meant so much to somebody you know mm-hmm. in that time that could have alleviated for a moment the, the the suffering or the struggle that they were involved in i mean it's it's a really great style that the filmmaker did you know interweaving Bassard's interest his love of that music and, and his deep knowledge and then mm-hmm. putting those clips in at the same time so that we would see you know Stunhouse or the images of the era that the music comes from you went and said tim that there might be people out there who are watching this who are not necessarily fans of Americana, of old-timey sort of music, but I like to think that besides joy and playing that music and putting it in context as to why it's a great song and why it's worthy of your time, I think it would, if not necessarily make huge devotees the way he is, but you know, you might at the time have sort of thought, well, I'll go out and buy the CD of the soundtrack of Desperate Man Blues. I'd like to at least have these songs in my collection. That unbridled enthusiasm that he shows, I think, is enough. A lot of it really does come down as well to uh, how Edward Gillen displays this in the film. He never wants to point out Joe Bassard as an eccentric. This is a guy, oh, wow, look at him. He owns 15,000 records. Wow, look at It's always admiration. I mean, I, I think he, he lets the story tell itself. And apart from like a brief shot of him at the diner in one point with Joe Bassard. You, you never really see Edward Gillen come into shot in the film. It's because he realizes this is not my story. This is right. Joe Bassard's story and this is the story of these musicians. The cowboys, the blues singers, the bluegrass people. It's all their story. And yeah, look, feasibly this could have been a nine or ten hour film if he went through everything. And then it might have outstayed its welcome. I probably would have liked maybe another 20 minutes, but I certainly got a great encapsulation of not only about the music, but really who Joe Bassard actually was. We don't go into his history because it's more no. about who he was in 2003. You know, we get to see, right, he has a daughter. We get a couple of stories out of her from her upbringing. But actually, interestingly enough, they don't turn this as well into a talking heads type film, apart from you know, a few words from his uh, grown-up daughter about what she saw 
while she was growing up with him right. and a few words from a rock writer a guy called Eddie Dean they basically let Joe and the music tell the story and I think that's really to its advantage you could almost see Bizarre do an actual series of his own where he could take like three picks that he picks and then he actually explains the history of who they, you know, and, they, and then they have the footage, you know, along with it. I mean, I could, I, I'd watch that. Radio is his medium. He's still doing radio shows. I, I went and looked up to see if any of the shows had been put out as podcasts. And if you look online, I think I think it's called Joe Besides Country Classics. And there's like about 25 shows that all got put out late last year. So at least if you want to listen to him do the sort of things that he's doing, then at least you have that much you mentioned before tim about what he thought about rock and roll music and how he threw a john lennon record across the lawn when his daughter brought it into the house and yet he's not a luddite as far as he's concerned you know great music ended well he says in the film i think with the 1950s but like on the podcast slash radio show that he does he's playing songs from the 1960s that are still old-timey in style i listened to a couple of episodes but you know he's vehement he says rock and roll is a cancer You, you were saying before Bernie that you know he can seem as being very pushy and I mean maybe if you wanted to be opinionated kind, very... I guess but that was about it I didn't bother with rock and roll but to me it was childish four year old stuff for four year olds kindergarten kids I couldn't believe it you know somebody 16 years old like I was would even listen to that stupid stuff but they did there's no well you know you like what you like no his opinion <laughs> is that rock and roll is a cancer there's no arguing with that and yet i imagine you'd be hard pressed to find any cds in his house and yet there he is on this radio show slash podcast whatever you want to call it and he's saying if you want to get in contact with me then send me an email or you can follow the show at this website so it's not like he's kicking 21st century late 20th century technology for its own sake he wants to share the music the music has got to be old-timey how it's delivered whatever way it is he said if you in the 21st century can download his program and listen to songs from the 1930s and the 1940s if you can get to hear jimmy rogers in by downloading it from your computer then that's okay by him and i sort of found that was an interesting thing it's normally all or nothing but now maybe i'm making a presumption but you get a feeling almost that you know he would be so pissed off with people like Zeppelin or Clapton, oh, yeah. you know, and, and basically listening to, what are you doing to my music, man? He knew exactly where all this came from, and then to hear it kind of perverted or just shit on, you know, in his mind. And it's the same thing where Muddy Waters and Wolf did their electric albums, where the only reason they did it was to really get the hippie audience. They never really looked at ramping up their music. They're like, look, you know, why don't you take it the way we play it? Like That was kind of like Wolf. They really had to push him to get into that amplified thing because he really wasn't into it at all. He was just kind of like, look, you know, I, I want to make it more ground level. I want to make it more guttural. I don't I don't want to amp it up. I could see Bizarre just going, you know, what is this monkey junk? You know, like, I just can't. Oh, no. Okay. Before we get on to other subjects, let's just be clear what it is you're doing here. Why do you have all these records? That's what I'm asking. Stop. I, I mean, try to collect every song in the world. Like, once. You're trying to collect every song in the world. It's like stamps, yeah. Same thing. Every song in the English-speaking world? No, everything. I've got French and Italian right behind Mark there. And every any. every song of any kind? In the world, I'm trying to, yeah. No, it doesn't well, matter what language. You, I mean, you don't have a wish list. You just you just know what. Right. Yeah. You, you have in your head what you have. Yeah. 
So I think at this stage, I'd sort of like to talk about as a counterpoint to Desperate Man Blues, the second film that is a focus of this episode. Shouldn't we call it the first one is Desperate Man and the second one is Desperate Men? <laughs> <laughs> so Alan, Alan Spike was, uh, well, still is, Canadian director who in his film doesn't come to so much celebrate music listening as, or even celebrate record collecting as to get to the bottom of why people become obsessed with record collection and himself included and the film is far from flattering well, um, i would actually go as far to say this isn't really a documentary about collecting records it's a documentary about obsession and i don't know if a mental illness or mental health issues to a certain extent i don't know if that's too strong but it's not this is one isn't really about the music is it it's not at all about the music. There are some people who he goes out of his way to make them look as if they're pathetic. He's doing that to himself as well because he basically says, you know, this is my tribe. You are my people, but I know myself and I'm going to reserve the, the worst bile for my own record collecting habits and my own obsession. But I'm going to show the mirror on you as well. And some of them sort of... They, they fight back but every time someone says hey listen for me it's always been about the music and Zweig says to them no it's not it's never been about the music there's a couple of people who he, he talks to briefly who are obviously genuinely into it for the music and he's a, a lot less interested in talking to them it seems than the people who obviously are the, the obsessives welcome so, to the freak show yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I speak as somebody so, who is one of those obsessives, so I'm, I'm not being judgmental about this at all. Morris and Tim have seen my record collection, so they, they know this one cuts a little <laughs> close to home for me. What's the correlation between abusive substance and buying records? Yeah. Uh, both are compulsive. Both are escapist. There's ritual involved in both. Both take huge chunks of time. Both regulate the emotions. When you put on an Iggy Pop record or an Ornette Coleman record, you know what to expect. You know where your emotions are going. Real life doesn't offer that that protection, that certainty. <laughs> All right, so I'm just going to put you down on the uh, on the couch here, Bernie, and, and just sort of ask you, uh, I'll just get my notepad out. And really, I mean, you, you did write to us during the week and said that this cut a little close to the bone, and that you tr you surely don't feel that you're someone who collects records just because it's there. I mean, there's, there's a point in the film where Zweig says that, you know, his current obsession is easy listening music, and he knows it's crap, but five bucks and he gets a bag of 20 records, so he just can't leave it behind. That's not you, surely? No, no. I mean, it, it's not too far removed. I, I can kind of recognise that impulse. I'm a lot more selective than that, but um, I can understand that impulse. I've got friends. I know a few people who are pretty much in that bracket. You know, I've got a friend whose his entire house is full of records. He's got records in his kitchen cupboards. Right. He's got multiple copies of records just because he can't leave them when he finds them. Yeah, I'm not there, but um, I can recognise it, and I know one or two people who are there. I will completely admit it's not entirely about the music for me. It's about the actual tracking stuff down and obtaining it and owning it. You know, I'm fully aware that I am doing that, but I don't feel the need to just own everything. I think there's a deeper thing here, though, and it's not just the fact of collecting and owning I think that when you see, like, there's so much of these these individuals that things in their lives that they can't control, yeah, that absolutely. are out of out of out yeah. of their control, right? Do you guys know about the real dolls? 
I don't. No, I never. Okay, heard. real real dolls now are these lifelike human-sized dolls that some men have actually bought in Japan and other countries, okay, and it's just yeah, like your, yeah. your artificial partner. And I'm yeah. not talking about blow-up doll. I'm talking about yeah, I know. dolls with the hair, and they and they put clothes on, and they actually talk with them, and you know, and it's really creepy. But it's that idea of having something there that you have complete control over. It's the idea of possessing something that you can control at any time in any way that you want to. It's just that they need yeah. that control. They need that because everything else is out of their control in their lives. And they feel like they just need that one element of their lives that they're in absolute 100% complete control of. So like it, like what he says is it's not about music is absolutely right. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you, you have a real doll or you have vinyl or you collect Star Wars shit or whatever. It's this whole idea of just being in absolute yeah. control of one facet of your life, of being the god of your own domain. There's that fellow who said his stated aim was to collect every record ever made. I can tell you every song on every KTEL record collection. Pick one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's amazing. That was, He's just... Your, that, oh. your point there, Tim, about wanting to be in control of something he's the first person I think of. He wants to think, yeah, right, I'm yep. in complete control. I know every song on every case. And actually, he doesn't. But The king of Ketel, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of Zweig's contention in the film that he, he puts to a bunch of these people? He says, you're collecting these records because you're not capable of maintaining human contact, of maintaining a real human relationship. Does that seem realistic? Or is, is he just projecting because at the time the movie was made, he couldn't keep a domestic sort of relationship going? He said, I, I really, I desperately want a wife. I want a daughter. I've wanted a, I wanted a daughter for seven or eight years. I'd love to have a child. I'd love to be a father, but I can't maintain human human contact i can't maintain a, right. uh, a relationship that's why I collect is, it, records. is it just me or is it all of us right i think that with men particularly we kind of have this we can have this habit of sort of disappearing into ourselves as a sort of safety mechanism and when that just goes way 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 too far you then get people whose apartments are just full of records and they can't relate at all to anybody or anything else i don't know whether it's the the kind of weird hunter gatherer instinct if if it's repressed too much we kind of go in the complete opposite direction there's a this kind of weird safety uh, thing i don't know i don't know and to be to be fair to the collectors in here it's, it's just not collecting it's like disappearing into your job disappearing into an obsession with exactly sport. that's exactly uh, it, it isn't it mm. you kind of lose yourself to it yes. right and it's a, a buffer just like they're talking about yeah. against that sure. word Sure. And I mean, when you get into a relationship, when you're talking about with, you know, somebody of the opposite sex and trying to you know develop a relationship, there's elements in that that you can't control. So I think that these guys really find that they're feeling like it's awkward to them because they can't basically control every element of it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that in collections, again, like I say, distractions, you, you try to control every element. It's that whole um, power trip thing. Uh, is, is it Zwig? Yeah, that's yeah. it's why I speak. Yeah. Okay, so I so I get the end. He's talking about when he goes out at night and yeah. he's alone. I mean, it's you can sympathize with him, and he's talking about coming home, and then he's with this record collection, and he's still alone, but he doesn't feel that aloneness. You know, in a sense, it's a world he's created for himself. Mm -hmm. And some of us may may look at that and say that's a strange world to occupy your time with. But once again, it's his world, and he feels much more comfortable there than being alienated out in 
the more social world. Has anyone read J.G. Ballard before? Oh, yeah. Many times. So, so really, I mean, watching this, especially with this discussion with Harvey Picard, and I don't know who it was at like the five minute point. It's an, a guy in an orange shirt talking about the coping aspects of some of these collective manias. You know, it reminded me of Ballard's mapping explorations of contemporary kind of techno fetishes and kind of consumeristic fascination with certain people. Right. I mean, right. they're not listening to the music at a certain point. It's no. just it's just the symbolism. It's the image. It's right. the possession of it. You're right. It's like the way people collect spoons or they collect postcards yeah. or they collect anything. It's a ritual. It's become- about the impulse, isn't it? It's not about yeah. what you're collecting. Yeah. Some people got to have have the records and some people don't have to have the records. Uh, major collectors have to have the records. I've seen marriages break up, heart attacks. They're so, you know, entwined in this thing that, you know, they just, it's, it's their whole get-go in life, and it shouldn't be. Well, like I was saying, it's just this is something inherent, I think, to us as a species, and particularly the male members of the species. If it's not records, it's football, or it's cars, or it's... Like I say, maybe it is the hunter-gatherer thing, because we don't actually have to uh, to do that anymore. We're just channeling it into other areas to fill that, uh, that deep black void in our souls. I don't know. There are a few women in this film. It is predominantly men, you are correct, but... But they're a we, lot more we... well-adjusted than the men, aren't they? Well, I, I wasn't terribly sure about the wife of that uh, Elvis fan who'd gone and decorated their bedroom <laughs> with hundreds of right. tapestries and photos yeah. and paintings well, of she, Elvis around she obviously gave bit. up on life like 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Or the, other, the end. or the other girl <laughs> who said, uh, oh, I collected every Turtles album and I just drew this picture of Frank Zappa on my t-shirt. Like, uh, <laughs> back out slowly. So basically, you're making a film because you feel guilty. I don't know that we can solve all your problems. What's the thesis of this whole piece? Are you listening to me? Because I'm wasting my time if you're not. In prep for this discussion, I went and watched a film that I'm not sure if it's his latest. It's like very recent, like maybe about three years, four years ago. Zweig made a film called When Jews Were Funny. And um, the film is basically it's like vinyl. It's another Talking Heads documentary. Just It has a budget and better production values. And the theme of the film is to search for the answer to the questions about, A, whether there really is such a thing as Jewish comedy. And if post-cat skills post-Europe, mid-20th century, are Jewish comedians in America still funny? And the reason why I particularly wanted to bring this film up, not just to say, well, I've seen another Zweig film, but there's two things which I sort of see are a good connection to vinyl. Now, more than one comedian in the film calls Zweig out for not necessarily making an authentic investigation into the subject matter, but really using the film as a means of purging his own guilt at not really having made any purposeful connection with his Judaism. So all the people in vinyl are sort of saying, hang on, you're calling us a weirdo. Who the hell are you? But in in this film, uh, once again, they're calling him out. And Tim, you'll be interested to know that in particular, Bob Einstein really, (laughs) really rips into him. And the, the whole film is great. 
great, but particularly for the Bob Einstein bit, it's it's worth the price of admission. And the second thing that I thought was uh, interesting is it's a good postscript to vinyl because, as I mentioned earlier, in that film, Zweig says that his dream was to get married, was to have a real relationship, to have a domestic relationship, and to have a child. And in this film, at the age of 60, he's married and he has a, I don't know, she couldn't have been more than, I think, one or two years old uh, daughter. Uh, so he's met his dream of domesticity and yet he still has <laughs> some level of guilt. I, I, yeah. I read an interview with him where he said he did cull a lot of his record collection, but he is still collecting records, but right. to what he deems a manageable extent. But it's a sort of thought that those two points in this film made an interesting sort of connection and postscript to vinyl. And, it, and it's it's an entertaining film in its own right as well. I wanted to ask you guys a question now. With Zweig putting himself in the film, pointing the camera at himself and his whole monologue and all of that, I don't know about you, but I got a total taxi driver feeling out of it. <laughs> you talking to me? Like, it, it, it just kind of felt like, you know, like the whole thing about De Niro with his monologue through Taxi Driver, how it's just the whole thing about how he, what he wants and what he sees. And the, it, and especially at the end when he's talking about it, going out into the street for this 15 minutes of connection with somebody. And it's like, it just really kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it was as extreme as Taxi Driver, but I just had that whole kind of uh, feeling about it. We never see him look into the camera directly. It's always violent the mirror and right. at several points in the film he's saying that all he wants is the truth and i think the mirror is symbolic of the fact that the mirror never lies when you right. look into the mirror what you see is the truth it's what you are there's no coloring it there's no rose-colored right. glasses there's no filtering the mirror is what you are and i think that's possibly his motivation i, I don't know maybe i'm reading too much into it but, but i think that would that necessarily be true because it's a reflection i mean if, but, if, well, the, if the camera was looking him directly in the eyes I mean, it would seem like yeah, it would be right. more straightforward. I mean, just to be like a more straightforward thing. Yeah, all right. I fucked that up. <laughs> I think you could maybe look at that either way. I'm happy to be called that. No, that was just the impression that I got. There's also the possibility of with a camera being pointed at you, you can manipulate the image that you see. Right. Whereas yeah. I always sort of thought, you look in the mirror, what you see is what you get. Right. I saw the a lot of critiques of him doing that. I mean, people that were really annoyed by it and said, you know, this film would have been much better. And I, I think the film really benefits from that. You know, because you keep getting that kind of grounding where he's at least looking back because he is in a sense exploiting these people and, but he keeps turning the camera back on himself yeah, and letting yeah, us know that he's he's the same person so yeah, it, right exactly he gets he away with it because it. of that doesn't he definitely if, yeah if he wasn't in it then it would be much more exploitative one thing I wanted to say also about both films and collecting in general was I was just having this discussion with somebody and I was saying that you know I admit I collect DVDs Blu-rays I've got a whole bunch bunch of posters in ephemera and guiltiest charge but here's the thing i was just explaining to somebody recently that you can't measure taste but the thing that really is sad in, in in one sense is that when something becomes more popular in society they create more of it obviously right so that the chances are 
in 50 years, something is still going to be more available based on the fact that Transformers was so popular in 2000 that in 2050, you can still get a copy of the Transformers. Meanwhile, something you consider to be really great or something that, you know, you really love, maybe, you know, it, it really wasn't recognized in the rest of society. So therefore, you know, they're not going to produce so much of it. And so the chances are in 50 years, it's not going to be so available, right? And we see that with out-of-print movies and out-of-print vinyl and out-of-print all kinds of things. So, I mean, that's the impetus to collect, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that you know that chances are, you know, a lot of this stuff will never, ever be reproduced again, like like Joe Broussard, like the stuff that he found, you know? But it's our values. It's, we see these historical artifacts. We see them being not just important, but ha as having artistic merit, whereas right. the casual music listener, the casual film goer, it's transient. Maybe so many years down the line, mm. it's nostalgic. They don't relate right. to the music. They relate to what they were doing in their life. But, you know, Hellman is just a film. It's just sure. a song. But what I'm saying is a lot of that transient stuff and a lot of the pop culture, the pretty mindless, you know, ephemera and all of that, sadly to say that that's the stuff that's probably going to continue to be, you know, available and reproduced and well, reproduced it is. and reproduced. You can kind of see that already. You go to a second-hand yeah. record shop or even like a Goodwill-type shop and it's filled with CDs from the last 20 years, like Justin Bieber CDs or... Well, maybe yep. not Justin Bieber, I don't know, Backstreet Boys or something like Britney that. Britney Spears, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's the stuff that hangs around and, and just never goes. Right. It's the, uh, the more esoteric, off-the-wall stuff. Like you say, there's less right. of it around. Which right. is, again, like you're saying, that's exactly what Joe Bussard did. He was sort of digging all that stuff up, totally. So I think it's I think it's a responsibility, you know, of a lot of people to kind of, like, I, I have a buddy of mine, actually, in Toronto. He actually archives a lot of old films from the 60s, 50s, and 60s, like old instructional films and driver's ed films and all of that stuff. And, I mean, he's actually got a vault, and he stores it in his vault, even got to the point of where he tries to repair and restore old Super 8 projectors and all of that. That, you know, because he's just trying to keep all this stuff pristine. And it's not just a hobby. It's a fact of actually saying, look, once this stuff is gone, it's gone. Like, that's it. You know, and there's no bringing it back because there's no need to bring it back. This is a funny thing. When you see celebrities, for example, you know, when they're starting out and you see, like, for example, like Tom Cruise on an exercise video and, you know, he can deny it all he wants, but he started, you know, as a 12 year old kid on an exercise video and somebody has a copy of that and they're just going, hey, man, like, check this out. I got Tom Cruise on he didn't do that oh yeah watch this and it's like whoa like i didn't know that there's value in, in so many things but i think it's up to us to make sure that a lot of this stuff remains because if we don't man then it's just going to be relegated to the scrap yeah. people history and it's sad well, and it's going to allow people to rewrite the past which is you know it's something that happens constantly anyway at least this way you have a direct kind of line back there you know educational purposes as well because yeah. even if we say we deem this important to be preserved and for people to hear it the next generation has to want to hear it so they can continue the work because otherwise when we go the music goes or the films go or whatever it is that's being collected it's right. gone it's only as good as far as you're sort of letting the next generation know hey this is well worth your time and interest in checking out do you guys think that if Alan Zweig had met Joe Facade that he would have presented him in the same light as he presents anyone else in vinyl 
or he would have said, this guy is an exception. How do you think he would have presented Joe Bassard? It's hard to tell from Desperate Man Blues because Bassard comes off, you know, in a very positive light. I mean, as a, which I, I'm assuming he is, you know, very well, well adjusted. He's got a family. He's got a life. Mm. He's out in the community. People know him, right? right? The newspaper covers him on a, a right. as we, we know, a decade basis. He's got a radio show. I think it would be very hard to fit him in the narrative of vinyl. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, he would definitely stand out as very different. And it's, I like the fact that we watch these two together and then I watch Desperate Man Blues first. It presents a very different picture of this. And and vinyl could, someone could watch that and just totally, you know, dismiss this as a crazy thing. And what was right. great was, you know, watching Bastard, I could identify my own tendencies, as you all have been saying, you know, mm-hmm. to collect or archive or want to pass yep. down knowledge and then i can also see my own aspects of mania or disorder in the second one you know and and even even be kind of tripped out and disturbed by it as i'm watching it you know yeah (laughs) things that i do so well i think he would have a hard time though with bassard fitting him into that film i don't see how he could sure because well one thing was was like you know bassard said you know he'd lost his wife and like you had mentioned you know he had a family already bassard like you say like you know he was very social in his community Mm. And he, you know, he went out and he actually had to dig out all this vinyl and he would go to communities and he would interact with people. Like, I love that bit in Desperate Man Blues where he's sitting in his truck and he's talking with those two African-American dudes. Yes. And they're all listening to the music and they're just like, yeah. And then one guy's looking at the other guy going, oh, yeah, man, I don't remember this. I know what you're talking about, dude. Like, this is awesome. You know, and they all start singing and it was great. You know, so he, he can bond with his community, whereas Zweig's documentary, it's just kind of like, so this is your stuff yeah this is my stuff I think with Zweig as well I mean this is the only film of his I've seen but from what you're saying about the other film you've seen Morris it almost feels like he's working through stuff himself whilst he's making these films Absolutely, the films are actually as much about him (laughs) as they are the subject matter you know whereas the the Bussard documentary is purely about Joe Bussard and I think maybe he yeah he wouldn't fit with Zweig's take on things because I don't think Zweig would be that interested in someone that doesn't fit in with what he's trying to kind of work through himself you know Oh, but Bassad would probably kick his ass out of his yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> once he got, got the impression, oh, this is what you're here to do? Fuck off. <laughs> but in this theoretical world where the two of them had gotten into the same room, uh, it'd just be uh, interesting to see, well, or even if Zweig would have uh, heard about Joe Bassad and thought, is he worth bringing into the film? Or, nah, he's too well-adjusted, doesn't fit. You were talking before about control and he wants to control the picture. No, I've got no use for this guy. He was happily married. He takes drives out to the country. And actually, as a thing, he also says that he had other collecting hobbies earlier on in his life, mm. didn't he? He said he, um, or he was a, a bird watcher. A bird nest. Or, yeah, yeah. A bird nest. Uh, right. So he had, he had other interests. And even then, it's not obsessive collection. He goes to places where he sees, you know, hundreds of 78s, but he's selective. He says, well, yeah, yeah. yeah th- these records aren't really that important. You know, I'll take right. this one. Well, so somebody says uh, in, in the documentary, don't they, that, you know, there's a lot of people out there with large record collections, but 90% of it is crap. Whereas with Joe Bussard, he's got a large record collection and it's all just pure gold. Yeah. So 100%. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's a question for you guys. I was going to say, Bernie, like, you've worked in a record store before, right? Well, I've never worked in one, but I've spent an awful lot of time in them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've everybody in similar places selling collectible goods. Put it that way. Right. Yeah. I know everybody knows, or maybe you've had the experience of seeing 
that one regular that comes in all the time. And he's a little balance of both. I mean, he, you know, this guy's like an endless pit of knowledge, but at the same time, he's like that manic, obsessive dude, you know, and it's like a little bit of the both. I mean, like when I used to work record store years ago, we'd have this guy come in and the first time he says to me, I said, what kind of music do you like? I like Buddy Holly. I like Buddy Holly. So I'm like, okay. So then, you know, I'm looking around. I said, well, here's a Waylon Jennings record. He says, well, it's not the crickets. Do you know the crickets? He says, crickets were started and blah, 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 blah. And their first drummer was blah, 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 blah. And then Buddy went to play with Sunday. The guy's just going on. And he's this guy with Coke bottle glasses. And he's just looking at me like it's just all coming pouring out of his mouth. And he's not really thinking about what he's saying. It's just almost like he's like a animatronic, you know, like you pull the string behind his back and it just goes. (laughs) What you got to bear in mind, Tim, is this is his social interaction, though. He's obviously, you know, I I mean, as you and uh, Morris know, I spent an awful long time working in a comic book store. Oh, yeah. um, and it's it's that times a hundred. Honestly, people yeah. were just so. I don't think they the only two places they ever went were their mother's basement and the comic book store. Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just no social skills whatsoever. You learn yeah. to embrace it. Learn Absolutely. to let them riff and do their thing. And it's I, like, yeah. wow, I didn't know that. You know, I always think like... there, but for the grace of God, you know, I'm only two or three yep. steps removed from that. So I've, I've exactly got anybody who's passionate about anything along those lines, I'd I'd rather chat with them about the intricacies of Babylon Five. Exactly. Exactly. two hours than I would talk, talking about a football match with someone or you know four sure. people whatever but then yeah. you get other people coming in the store and it's when other people who's that guy oh he's so and so but yeah. don't get him going on Buddy yeah, Holly don't, you know? don't, <laughs> don't look him straight in the eye <laughs> you, you know you'll be here for another four hours this is, dude just don't go there yeah I'm, I've got to be here so I can deal with it just don't look at him right. yeah. so you know like you gotta love these people I Absolutely. mean you gotta love their obsessions you gotta love Absolutely. you know the fact that it's not up to us to decide how people enjoy life man as long as you're not right. hurting anybody else Zweig's got his own trip that obviously you can tell and, and some of these other guys God knows what they're going through but it's like you know you wonder if some of these people didn't have this one aspect of joy that they get out yeah. of their lives that they, yeah. they didn't put a gun in their head or something you've got to let people take the aspects of joy wherever they may find it you know yeah. I think they probably would have found some other aspect to collect I mean if what you guys are saying before about the need to collect the need to accumulate something and have control over something if it wasn't going to be records it might be well you know Bernie as you said comic books or it it could be China plates it could be uh, could be anything who in the world think there would be a great blues record like this in a little town of Marsville in a house like that it just goes to show you they're still out there I just wanted to probably sort of do a wrap up and just final thoughts going around the table and whether you'd recommend these films to uh, the listeners. We'll start off with uh, you, Michael. I would definitely recommend both of these. I think I learned a lot as well as enjoyed both. There's one thing I wanted to say about both of those films. I was, while watching, especially Desperate Man Blues, but also Vinyl, I was thinking of Agnes Varda's The Gleaners and I. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. Tim kept mentioning hunter-gatherer patterns for males, but The Gleaners and I, a gleaning, would be coming into fields and picking the remains in a certain sense you know when Bassard's going through these places he's picking through the records uh, that people want to get rid of I mean it just really mm-hmm. struck me at that film and this film comes out in 2000 which is very contemporaneous with both these films I mean it would be oh. really interesting to watch with these films 
Right. Okay. I highly recommend Desperate Man Blues for anybody that loves music and wants to learn about music. And I'm definitely going to go check out this radio show that you mentioned. Vinyl, as we've all mentioned and reflected on, it should be for anybody that has certain manias for anything. You know, should right. take a look at this, think about it, not be dismissive, be aware of our own tendencies in a certain sense. Right. Um, I don't know. There's the the one man in vinyl that that had cancer. I mean, I just had deep empathy for him, and you know, to see his house like this and to just kind of reflect on you now he's struggling with it. I mean, throughout the film, it's it's a very moving film. You know, difficult. It's not the easiest thing to watch. No, no, it's not. I think it's, I think it's really important to, to to take a look at. Yeah, I would, I would echo what Michael said, particularly with vinyl. But people who have have these kind of urges or interests but also people who don't who perhaps know people like that you know kind of long-suffering partners of a you know collectors or what have you you know it gives a uh interesting peek inside to uh, that kind of inside to uh, inside of that kind of mentality yeah i would totally recommend vinyl to anyone really you know it's, it's not laugh a minute put it that way not at all um and uh, yeah desperate man blues as well again as michael said if you got any interest in music I mean, even if you don't, to be honest, the bus side's such an engaging character, and because it's just a nice, concise 50 minutes or so, it's not a, a huge investment. So if, if you just like interesting, eccentric characters, absolutely recommend both of them. Yeah, I, I uh, concur with both of you guys. I say that both of them are absolutely fantastic films. With Bassard, it really took me back to my granddad. My mom's dad, because, uh, you know, he was the one who used to play a lot of Tex Raider, Bob Wildes, a lot of the old cowboy music, and even, you know, yodeling. You know, I'm growing up with listening to, like, Kissette and hearing actually people play in campfires, you know, when we used to go camping, you know, in the summertime. And just hearing a lot of that old music, and it just really brought back memories of my granddad to me. In terms of uh, Zweig's film, Michael, you were talking about films of the past or something that reminds you of something else. It reminded me of also the film The Collector. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. I read it, the book. It's based okay, on the book. Okay. It just reminded me though of that whole mindset where you're wondering whether some of these people were just two steps away from, you know, yeah, okay, you know, it's like I'd really, yeah. I really want a girlfriend. I really, <laughs> really want a girlfriend. Yeah, okay. But you know, at the same time, you empathize with these people as well as you're put aback by them. You know how far things go, but you really have to respect the joy that they get from doing what they do and i mean as long as you know it keeps people on an even keel i would rather see people being medicated by collecting vinyl than actual prescription medication you know what i'm saying like i i would rather see people kind of scratch their itch or or, or keep themselves in an even keel through their obsessions than actually you know wind up becoming you know a, a prozac zombie or something like that because of keeping themselves in check another thing too that got me as well as is seeing Zweig's film is it reminded me of the work of Errol Morris in a way yeah because the way Morris would find these characters that were just kind of left of center and in a way it it reminded me of the uh, what was that film that Morris did about the pet cemetery about uh, people losing their pets and it was oh, all yeah uh, yeah it's something is it about, about the uh, is the title kind of where it some, is it's somewhere in florida isn't it yeah right it's something yeah. heaven i think called yeah yeah but, yeah uh, but anyway it was all about obsessions and about the meaning of companionship and about being able to develop relationships or the lack of relationships and all of that so i think zweig really touches a lot of things and yeah like where bernie said that bassard's a little pushy zweig <laughs> <laughs> is very pushy 
So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend both these films. I'm so glad that all you guys really love these films. I watched them years and years ago, and I can't think for the, for a moment why it was I hadn't brought these to the table earlier, but I'm glad we finally got to them. The whole thing about Bassard to me is he looks like, I guess, like a man-child. Every time he puts on a great record in the film, the smile just lights up the room. He's playing air fiddle, air guitar, air double bass and it's the total joy that is shown by a child and that's not meant to be a put down it's, it's joy that is true it's not joy that yeah. is put on for the camera it's not spoiled it's like man this is the best thing in the world that I'm doing is playing you this record I, I think he's playing at one point I can't remember who the uh, record was by but he's playing some hot jazz and there he is like waving against the record like you know getting getting rid of this yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, this smoke from, from the yeah. hot jazz it's the joy is honest the the joy is true. The thing I take away from this film, you know, you don't have to love this music to love this film, but I'd be surprised if you came away from the film without wanting to pursue it further, just purely based on his excitement and showing you this is why this music is great, not just important. And Zweig's film... Once again, yeah, he's some, he started out with an agenda, but you so, sort of wonder whether it's as much about him playing devil's advocate. He, he said, look, I, I just want to put this question out there to the viewers. Yes, he, he puts himself in the spotlight and he says, yeah, there's a real problem here, but is it just as much about generating conversation like what we've been doing for the last hour or so as it is about public therapy? It might be just, you know, sort of cheap therapy for him. I don't know. But yeah, like you guys, I would completely 100% recommend both of these films to our listeners uh, if you've been listening to the show this far along then you're obviously fans of music related films and these two are really really good ones I love a good documentary it sucked me into their world and even like you could argue that Spike's film at two hours might have gone a little bit too long but I never was once looking at my watch I think much longer would have been a problem and the film is on YouTube you can find it out there on YouTube so um, final I'd recommend that you might have to search a little bit more if you can find the dvd for uh, desperate man blues it should be out there all right at this stage two things left to do so first of all michael once again thank you so much for your first and hopefully not your last appearance on the uh, see here it's been an absolute joy having this discussion with you it's been my pleasure on here and uh actually you know it's great always to interact with new films and talk to other people about it if anyone's interested that's in kentucky one check out desperate man blues and think about gatewood galbraith our perennial governor candidate a dead ringer uh, in in look as well as attitude. Uh, two, if you're interested in the Bluegrass Film Society, it's we have a, a site on Facebook. You can Google it. You'll find it. I also have a website that's called Dialogic Cinephilia. Um, if you just Google that, it'll come up or internationalfilmstudies.blogspot.com. I'm always interested in talking to other people about films and other cultural things as well as, you know, meeting up to see a film if, if people are interested and talking about it. Um, everyone's welcome to Film Society. Fantastic. I'll put the links to those sites in the post for this show. Thanks. I appreciate it. So, Bernie, it's episode 50 next month, and it is your pick. So, it's a very auspicious occasion, episode 50. Okay, what well, have it's, you uh, it's a big episode. And mm. speaking as, as we were, well, as you mentioned just now about it's criminal that we haven't covered vinyl and Desperate Man Blues up to this point. There's a big heavy hitter of a film that I think uh, it's about time we covered. Don't say rattle and hum. Don't say rattle and hum. <laughs> <laughs> it's Don't you YouTube's dare, rattle and hum. Oh, 
no, 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 no. I was initially going to pick the germs biopic, uh, What We Do Is Secret, and I thought, hang on, if I'm going to pick a biopic, what's the big one that we haven't done? So next month, we are going to be talking about Oliver Stone's The Doors. Mm. Exactly, a a polarising (laughs) film, uh, to put it bluntly. So that should be interesting. I haven't seen it since I saw it at the cinema, in fact. I haven't seen it since it came out. So I'd be very curious to revisit it and see what you guys think as well. We'll talk about that offline. Uh, (laughs) 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 All right. Uh, So there you have it. Oliver Stone's biopic on the doors coming next month to see here. That will be March of 2018. Housekeeping stuff, if you want to interact with us, and we sincerely hope that you do, you can go onto Facebook, facebook facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here. That's S-W-H-E-A-R. We can be found on iTunes or you can get us from com, or just look us up in the podcast catcher of your choice on your mobile device, whatever it might be. It could be Podcast Addict is the one I use, but any podcast catcher should be able to uh, track us down, recommend us to your friends. Just recommend us to one other person. If every listener recommends us to one other person, then we'll have maybe ten, ten listeners. <laughs> ten. <laughs> we may break yeah, your luck. I recommended you to ten. So maybe actually, actually uh, that's that's something I've been meaning to say, Michael. You have been tireless in promoting this program even before I invited you to come on. I'm so flattered. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for, so much. Yeah, the checks we, in the post, we, Michael. Thank you. If I like it, I'm one of those collectors, you know. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I wanted to say too, you know, seeing this, this is I'm part of this podcast. You know, as of today's recording, I just want to send out a happy birthday to uh, one Mr. Alejandro Jodorowsky. Oh, holy cow. Yeah. Keep yeah. going, Jodo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Keep on I going. He's, I reckon he's a big fan of this show. <laughs> yeah. Well, he Absolutely. will be. Hopefully. All right. So uh, with all that done in the can, next month, the doors. Gentlemen, this is the end. Beautiful friends. <laughs> I had to do it. I'll probably do it again next month. So um, until next month, please listen to some great music in your vast collections. Please play your way through those records. Don't let the music stay idle. Watch some great films and be nice to each other. And until next month, we uh, look forward to um, speaking to you again then. All the best. Cheers. Mm -hmm.